But their colors are red and blue, and so I told her, I said, I gotta wear some red and blue so I can feel like I'm representing a little bit. And as I was getting dressed in the mirror, I noticed like I was about ready to go stand up on a primary debate. And so rest assured, nothing that exciting will happen here. But I do hope we'll be inspired maybe a little bit. Um, the other day, I guess it was actually probably Sunday night or the Sunday night before, I preached through a great and incredible distraction, I'll have you know. My son had picked up my phone in the pew and was holding it to his ear as if he was talking on it and trying to wave at me while I was speaking, which was very cute and as a result very distracting. And I've noticed, and he's done this a couple times now, if he ever sees my phone lying around, he'll, he'll pick it up and he'll put it to his ear, which is funny because I'm, I'm just not really sure he understands how the calling thing works. He just knows that's where it goes. And in a strange sort of segue, it kind of brings us to our lesson this morning. We've been studying the prayers of the Bible. And in our prayer this morning, I want us to think about in the context and the idea of calling. Because I don't think very many of us as Christians understand how calling works. I've been studying some of the, the calling passages in the Bible uh, for a class, from Moses to, to Samuel to Jeremiah, Isaiah to Saul, who would become Paul. And, and as I studied these, I thought about how much easier it would be if God just did this. If you just literally picked up the phone one day and God called you. And he said, hey, this is what I want you to do with your life. This is where I want you to go. This is the job I want you to get. This is who I want you to marry. This, this is what you should do. This is your calling. And I thought, you know, we really wouldn't be confused, right? We wouldn't have to guess. I wouldn't have to try three or four things and, and get it wrong before getting it right. We would just, we would just know. And I've learned that calling is kind of a tricky thing to talk about as a minister. Because when I talk about calling, people will say, well, well of course you know what your calling is. You're, you're a preacher. You have to know. And I think the funny irony there is that I bet all of us, I've probably heard at least one or two lessons from somebody who is definitely not their calling to be a preacher. And so we know what that looks like. But we'll say, well, you know, you're a minister. You have to know what your calling is. And I think the truth is that in this way, my job is kind of like any other job where for some people in ministry, believe it or not, for some people, it is just a job. You know, they do what they ask them to do. They, they collect the check. They go home. And then for some of us, it's more of... A calling. And I would bet some of you are in careers right now where you think to yourself all the time, man, this, this must be what I was born to do. But I bet just as many of you say, well, this is okay for right now. You know, it pays the bills. It, it's nice. It's okay. It doesn't keep me up at night or anything. And it, it's, okay, it's okay for right now. But I'm not sure this is, this is it. And when we talk about, when we say things like this, when we talk about having a calling, what, what we're saying is that, you know, I, I just feel like I was made to do this. That, that my desire and my skills and my gifts, that they just kind of line up perfectly in a way that, that makes me happy. And maybe if you're really lucky, you, you can be a little successful doing it. And I think we're very accustomed to thinking about calling in, in terms of our line of work, our vocation, our trade, our job. But, but I want us to think a little bit this morning about calling in light of the church. Because, see, I, I want you to imagine, if you will, that this idea that there is a, a role or a responsibility, and, and maybe it's a small task, maybe it's a, a big deal, or it's a some special kind of ministering that fits your natural desire, your skill set, your God-given gifts so perfectly that when you do it, 
You think, man, I was made to do this. It's not our focus passage, but the, the Gospel of Mark begins with one of the most famous calls in Scripture, I think. Jesus is walking along the sea. He sees two men, Simon Peter and his brother Andrew. They're, they're casting their nets. And Jesus says, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. The text says at once they left their nets and they followed him. The text says immediately Jesus called them. He saw them and he said, I know you're fishermen, and I know your dad was probably fishing, and his dad was probably a fisherman, and I, I get that you're really good at fishing, and you've got boats, and you've got nets, and you've got all this stuff. But if you'll let me, and if you trust me, I'm actually about to give you a different calling. Because I think that's what Jesus does. And when you study the Gospels, you, you see that Peter and Andrew didn't stop being fishermen. In fact, they fished with Jesus a couple different times. Jesus said, no, 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 still do that. Keep doing that. Maybe they went back to it after Jesus went back into heaven. He said, you're probably still good at that. But I want you to understand that no longer is that going to be your calling. Because when you encounter Jesus, your calling in life changes. And I would suggest that as Christians we can have jobs. In fact, if you have a family, I strongly encourage you to have a job. Bonus points if it's one you like, right? Even more bonus points if it actually happens to pay all the bills. But I want you to know that when you encounter Jesus, you, you get called in a spiritual way. See, when you encounter Jesus, we ought to be finding our spiritual calling. I think the problem, I think the problem in the church is that most of us don't find our spiritual calling. Most of us don't even know where to look. And so this is kind of where the focus of our lesson comes in this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn to Nehemiah. Chapter 1. We're going to read a little bit here from Nehemiah chapter 1. Because Nehemiah prays a prayer. And we're going to talk about what his prayer might teach us about understanding our calling. And so this is from Nehemiah chapter 1 beginning in verse 4. I'm sorry, beginning in verse 5. And I said, O Lord God of heaven... The great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant. That I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you. And have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you have commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the people. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and make them to the place I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now in all this, I was cupbearer to the king. Thank you. Hold on.
my microphone died, and I realized I had the chance to say something really big and cliffhanger and freak everybody out. I'm really ashamed. I missed that opportunity. So he concludes his prayer, and he says, In all this, I was cupbearer to the king. It's no small note. Cupbearer is a nice job. It's a fancy job. It's cushy, which means you, you serve the king, you live in the capital, if not somewhere in the actual palace grounds. And so Nehemiah's life is, is pretty good. And Nehemiah gets word that some of the exiles who left Babylon to, to return to Israel, that, that first wave of people going back to their homeland, that he gets word that things are not well. You see, if you were in our, our Bible class for the last several months, we've been studying the Old Testament. And we talk about that, that exile and how big that is, how much that affects things. And the first wave goes back and Nehemiah gets word that they're not doing well. And this causes him some great distress. It causes him to, to really be concerned because his brother reports that the walls have been destroyed, that the, the remnant is in great trouble and great distress. And when Nehemiah hears this, he sits and he weeps and mourns for days. That Nehemiah is a cupbearer in Babylon, weeping for people he's never met in a city that he's never been to. Why? I would say, because when Nehemiah prays, it makes him more aware of the problems of the world. Before Nehemiah ever left Babylon and made that long journey through the desert to the fallen city of Jerusalem, he prayed. And I understand that if we look at the context of the passage, we see that, well, well his brother is the one who told him about the events. His brother is the one who gave him the information. But it was through prayer that Nehemiah became truly aware of the spiritual weight of this problem. Prayer is what drives Nehemiah to see the city of Jerusalem not just as a, a city of bricks and a city of mortar with broken down walls, but a city with broken down people who live in those walls. Prayer opens Nehemiah's understanding to see that Jerusalem does not just exist to bring glory to itself. It exists to bring glory to God. And so Nehemiah realizes that if, if Jerusalem is in shame, then the glory of God has been brought to shame. And Nehemiah says, well, that simply cannot be. And I want us to realize that it would have been very easy for Nehemiah to hear about this problem and ignore it. Because you see, when you, when you have privilege, as Nehemiah did, and you have a, a nice position, as Nehemiah did, you can kind of isolate yourself. You don't, you don't really have to associate with the kind of people who are going to have tough problems. And I'll tell you something. As we apply Nehemiah to our day-to-day, -day, I've seen churches do this. I've seen churches make rules, non-scriptural ones, by the way, where they say, well, you can't worship with us if you have this kind of reputation in the community. You can't worship with us if, if you're going through this in your life. You can't worship with us if you have such and such legal issues going on in your life. You know what? You need to get that sorted out first, and then you can come here. I think God is interested in opening the doors of the church to people, not closing them. I would say we ought to want people to get in here, get them involved, and get them right with God. But I think sometimes churches want people to go get right with God and then show up here. Probably because that's a lot easier. Probably because that's a lot less work. 
as many of you know, whether in your personal life, in your immediate family, in your extended family, maybe friends you care about, dealing with people who have problems is a lot more work than dealing with people who don't. That's not what Jesus did. That's not what the church should do. Nehemiah could have heard this message and said, you know what, that's not really my fault, that's not really my responsibility. I don't even live there. But we ought to pray that God will open our eyes to the problems of the world. And if we're following the example of Nehemiah, we'll see not just the problems that are out there, but we'll actually see the problems that are in here. Because if you look at the text in verse 6, Nehemiah says, God, be attentive to our prayer, even as we confess our sins against you. He says, even I in my father's house, we have sinned. We've, we've acted corruptly. We've not kept the commandments. We've not given, uh, kept the rules that you have given us. Nehemiah's prayer made him aware of his own problems. And I think these two things are pretty linked because I'll tell you, when, you, when you're able to be honest and reflective about your own problems, it's going to change the way you view other people. It's going to start to change the way you view other people's. That's the whole point of what Jesus says about the speck in the log in Matthew 7. Is that it's always easier to see and it's easier to be critical of the problems other people have. It's always easier to criticize those than it is to criticize our own. But we need to pray. Because prayer leads to an awareness of the problems. Not just the problems that are out there and the problems that we can fix and the problems that we can address. But it makes us aware of the problems that we have going on in our own lives. And when we pray, there's this thing that happens where God, God comes in and he, he begins to sort of mold our hearts and change our perspective and begins to break our hearts over the same things that break His heart. Do you believe that God is sad when He looks at some things in the world? When He sees people struggling, when He sees people disobedient, when He sees people just being so down in life that they think there cannot possibly be a God who loves them. When we pray, we become aware of the things that break God's heart and they break ours. Because whether you realize it or not, that's actually a pretty serious outcome of consistent prayer. Because when you start praying about something, what happens is you, is you start caring about something even if you didn't care about it before. And you say, well, I only pray about things I care about. Well, maybe, but I promise you, if you add things to your prayer list, and you pray for even people you don't care about, or you pray for the problems that you, you didn't really see as a problem before, you're going to find that you begin to care about them. I would argue that's exactly why Paul tells us to bear one another's burdens. Because when we pray for each other, we're going to care about each other, whether we mean to or not. Paul says to, to care for each other is to bear one another's burdens, and in doing so, we fulfill the law of Christ. That's how important it is that we pray so that we can kind of cause ourselves to care even about the things we didn't care about before. As Christians, we have a responsibility to the problems that are out there. We might not feel like it, and we might say, well, it's not really our fault, but I would argue that it's, even if it's not our fault, it is our responsibility. Because we have a responsibility to show the world the love of God. And when we pray, our hearts become shaped to, to love and to care as God does. And then when you become aware of the problems and you start to care about the problems, something else starts happening. Something else that maybe didn't happen before 
benevolence. In the church, benevolence is, a, is usually a word that has a very specific meaning. When we say benevolence, what we typically mean is things and people the church gave money to, right? The definition, the actual meaning of benevolence is the, from the, the Webster's Dictionary, the quality of well-being, kindness, a disposition to do good. And do you see how those two things are a little bit different? Usually we talk about benevolence just in the context of spending money, but, but that word actually carries with it this, this quality of well-being, kindness, a disposition to do good. You know, I can, give, I can give money to people I don't care about. I don't know when you pay your bills, but I pay the water bill about on the 10th of every month. And on the 10th of every month, I write a lot of money to people I don't care about. Because I'll tell you what, for being in a small town on a river, we have very expensive water. And I don't understand why that is. But I'm quite positive that the town of Dover Water Department would just like me to write my check and continue not interacting with them. So on the 10th of every month, I write a check, and it's benevolence. But it's, my attitude toward them is not changing at all. See how that's a little different? I'm sending them a check, but I do. They don't want me to care. But when I pray about the problems and the issues and the cares that other people have, it makes me benevolent. And not just, not just the kind of benevolence we think of in just spending money, but the kind of benevolence where we, we exhibit a, a well-being towards the care and the concern for other people. And when you do that, you're actually becoming more Christ-like. You're becoming more of the kind of person God intended for you to be. To become more benevolent is a wonderful thing. Praying for these kind of things is important. Because when I pray, I'll tell you, I, I promise not a single person ever became a missionary before first praying for missionaries. For praying for the church plants and paying for the evangelistic efforts overseas. I guarantee not a single young man ever felt called into the work of ministry without out for sitting in the pew or laying down at night and praying for his ministers and his elders and his church leaders. Do you know that the kind of people who get into youth ministry are the kind of people who are already praying and caring about the future of our youth? And I say that. To tell you that when you pray for God to bring servants into the church, be careful because you just might start feeling called to serve in the church. Because benevolence isn't just about giving. It isn't just about money. It's about our attitude and our heart. Our attitude and our heart for helping and for serving. You know, Jesus says, whoever wants to be first must become servant of all. Because he says, for the Son of Man came to be served. Not to be served, but to serve. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. It's from Mark 10, 44, 45. The more you pray, you will find yourself taking on a Christ-like attitude of benevolence. But I would urge you to pray carefully. Pray carefully because if you start becoming aware of problems and you start noticing things that you hadn't noticed before and you start seeing them in a way that you hadn't seen them before and you start even feeling about them in a way that you had not felt before, you may just find yourself finding your calling. When I graduated high school, 
I remember thinking that I'm not really old enough to be making the kind of decision that I was making. You know, like I, I, was, I was considering going to school and I was realizing that if whatever I chose, I better be really sure of. Otherwise, I'm spending all this time and money and it's kind of just a waste. And I said, man, I don't know if I'm really old enough to make this kind of decision, which I'll tell you was a rare feeling in those days because as a 17-year-old boy, I was pretty sure I could make any decision and do just about anything. I said, I don't know if I'm, I'm ready for this. But I chose something and I felt confident enough in it and it, uh, well, it didn't really work out at all. It didn't stick. But nine years later, before I went off to Bible college, I told my then girlfriend, now wife, I didn't know what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. Which was very encouraging. I proposed not long after. For some reason she said yes. I said, we're going to Alabama, and I'm going to go to a school you've never heard of, and I'm going to do something, but I don't really know if it's what's going to be that I want to do the rest of my life. I said, you know, I, I really want to be a missionary, but I'm not, I'm not, I'm not positive. And I, I explained it to her like this. I said, you know, if, if I can get into the hallway and I kind of see what all the doors are, maybe then I'll know which one I'm supposed to walk through. I don't even know what the, 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 the hallway looks like. or the, I don't even know what the doors are. I don't know what the possibilities and their options are, because I, and so I couldn't possibly ever figure out which one of those things it is that I'm being called to do. And I only had one kind of internal restriction, if you can believe this, other than that I, I think I wanted to be a missionary. I also said, and I could never be a full-time preacher. Serious. I said, I can, I, anybody can fill in on a Sunday every now and then, right? You've got like three months to write the sermon. You come up with the best thing and you perfect it. I, said, I could never be one of those guys that preaches every Sunday. I couldn't do anything like that. Believe me, not every Christian is called to full-time preaching. I understand that. But I would say every one of us is called to be a full-time Christian. And so sometimes you've got to be, at least be willing to walk down the hallway and sort of see what the doors are before just deciding that none of them are for you. Because we're called to use our gifts and our talents and our abilities for the kingdom of God. But so many of us won't even look down the hallway. We won't even dip our toes into the water. And so we're standing on the sidelines. And I think sometimes we're afraid of what we might be called to do. So what we choose to do is nothing. Tonight, we're going to talk a little bit more about the danger of ignoring your calling, but I think all of us are probably pretty familiar with the story of Jonah. But yet, so many of us, I think we're scared to even look down the hallway and see what the options are. But you won't figure out what you're called to do if you're not willing to try a few things. And what's funny to me is we don't know this in the church, but we know this in the vocational world because... Every parent has tried to tell their 16, 17, 18-year-old son, look, you're going to have to place a few job applications. Yeah, I understand they didn't call you back. Well, okay, yeah, I know that you filled it out online, and I know that you uh, called them once at 4 o'clock on a dinner shift, but you've got to show up. You've got to talk to somebody, right? And then if they tell you no, guess what? You've got to try a few other places. You're probably going to have to fill out a few job applications, and then guess what? You might even have to take a job you really don't want before finding the career that actually works for you. But here's what we do at the church. We take one glance at the very short list of responsibilities that we see, and we say, ah, none of those are for me. I, I, just, I just don't think that's, not a single one of those that I see really fit me. So I say, how do you know? 
How do you know which door is for you if you won't even get into the hallway? How would you know which one is or is not yours if you won't even take the time to pray? To pray and be aware of what's even going on out there. We pray about it. Because when you pray and you become aware of the issues in yourself, the issues in the church, the issues in the community, then your heart is going to be open to, to helping and to healing and to fixing and addressing the issues in the community. When you start noticing all the helping and the healing and the mending and the fixing that's going on, you may get up one day and you say, you know what, hey, that's, that's something I could do. I'll tell you one more thing. Is God may be calling you to serve in a way that our congregation hasn't even really done before. And I get it. We're small town. We're risk averse. We're used to doing things the way we've always done them. And we, you know, the things we've always done the way we've always done them. But do you really think we have figured out every way every Christian could use their gifts for the kingdom? Our little hundred people, we've got them all figured out. I'd say probably not. I had a family just this week come to me with an idea. And they said, you know, we, we saw this in another church we used to worship at. But we've never seen it here. And we'd love to do something like that. And I said, that is awesome. They said to me, we, we have this idea, and you know what? We'll even organize it, and we'll take it on. And I said, oh, hold on, hold on, hold on. Do you mean to tell me you have an idea that you want the church to do, and you're volunteering for it? You have come to the right person. <laughs> I've got time for those conversations all day long. Calling is a heavy topic. But I think sometimes it gets so heavy that we just sort of sit back, and we say, you know what? If God falls something right in my lap, that'll be my calling. But otherwise, I don't, I don't really think I'm called to do anything. 1 Peter 4.10 says, Each of us has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. I'll tell you, the Bible teaches, if you're a member of the church, you're called to do something. God has given you a gift, and he's, he is calling you to serve one another in some way. Last week we had a bulletin article, and I, I was disappointed that Jeff could, was sick and he couldn't make it. Although I told him, Jeff, you know, it's okay. You don't have to sing every week if you're not feeling well. Whenever he's gone, I forget all the little things he does, like the slides, like the bulletin. And he's our, uh, our press operator for the bulletin, so the bulletin didn't get printed. But the article for the bulletin was the same as the one last week with a little bit of emphasis on the second part of it. And the second part of that article talked about service in the church. And it talked about the different scriptures that teach that the Bible tells us and how all Christians are called to use their gifts for the good of God. But he kind of leaves us to figure out the details. But we won't ever get to calling if we won't even pray. We begin to close this morning. I've been speaking mostly to the members of the church, and I want to talk to those who might not be members of the church. Because in the Bible, there's also a different kind of calling. When Paul is preaching in Athens in Acts 17, he, he's preaching to pagans, to unchurched folk, to the kind of people who would have told Paul, you know, I'm just not sure this whole Jesus gospel thing is really for me, but I don't think it's really my, my deal. But Paul tells them about another kind of calling. It's in Acts 17.30. He says, although God has overlooked this time of ignorance, he's just saying the time of ignorance is past. God now calls everyone, everywhere, 
to repent. He says, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. The Bible teaches that any journey that ends in salvation must start with repentance. Because God calls everyone to repent. He calls us to repent, to hear and believe the word that has been given to us, to confess the name of all names in Jesus, and be washed for the remission of sins in baptism. And I suspect that if it was good enough for Paul to end his sermon that way, it's probably good enough for me. Won't you come while we stand and while we sing? So I must apologize first. I gave you all the wrong number. Uh, <laughs> we're actually going to sing 356. I apologize about that. 356. Yeah, Jesus is tender with all. <laughs>